how do we change? It's a question worth asking because if we're honest with ourselves, there are always things we want to change. We may want to be less critical or less angry, or we may have a problem that we just can't control, like an addiction. Christianity teaches that real change is only possible through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is only available to those who embrace Christ. Today, I want to look at Galatians 5 and show you how the Spirit empowers us to change. The beautiful thing about this passage is that it strikes a balance between legalism on one hand, that is, following rules, and libertinism on the other, that is, no rules whatsoever. There is a better way between the legalism and libertinism. It's not based on management strategies where we try to change through restrictions or rule following, nor is it based on indifference where we embrace our worst impulses. No, there is an alternative way. It is based on dependence on the Spirit, and real change is possible through the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to change, to be transformed. Let's take a look at the passage Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. And verse 16 gives us a single command that governs the whole section. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. A walking is something of a metaphor in Scripture. The idea is to live your life according to the Spirit. Listen to how the New Living Translation translates the verse. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. So that's the command. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives or walk by the Spirit. And here is the outcome. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, flesh in the Bible usually doesn't refer to the physical body. Typically, especially in the New Testament, it refers to the sin nature, the part that is naturally opposed to God. Again, the New Living Translation is helpful. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now, pay close attention. This is the result of the first command. It is not an additional or second command. Paul does not say, walk by the Spirit and don't obey your sinful cravings. He says, when you walk by the Spirit, you won't obey your sinful cravings. So there is a command, walk by the Spirit, that leads to the result of not gratifying the flesh. There's only one command, walk by the Spirit. So the key to change is submitting to the Holy Spirit. It is not trying really, really hard. It is not the the negative of don't do something. It is submitting to the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, letting the Spirit be your guide. Now, why is that the key to change? What is the relationship between the Spirit on the one hand, right, and, and turning from sinful cravings. So how is Paul making this connection? The answer is this. The Holy Spirit and the sinful nature are opposed to each other. Verse 17. For, and that's how we know that this is the point, for, here's the reason, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the life of the Christian is a life of warring tensions between the flesh and the indwelling spirit, or between the sin nature and the new creation. Elsewhere, the Bible speaks of the old man versus the new man. Or consider Paul's teaching in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice the only way to put to death the deeds of the sinful nature, what Paul calls the body there in Romans 8, is by the Spirit. Real change doesn't happen by following laws. Real change doesn't happen through management strategies. And there is this tension, this opposition that is constantly going on. And the more that we give to the Spirit, the less that the sinful nature can claim, and and vice versa. If you give more to the sinful nature that is satisfying its lust, then the Spirit lays less of a claim in our life. Look what Paul says next in Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, this can be pretty confusing when we hear this language of the law, and if we're slowing down enough to hear it, we might wonder, what in the world? Weren't we just talking about the flesh and the Spirit? Now we've entered this third category of the law. How does all of this relate? Well, first, he doesn't mean that God's instruction is irrelevant. Sometimes this passage and passages like it are mishandled to say, well, see, there's, there's no rules whatsoever. That is not what Paul teaches. But he does mean that the law cannot bring real change. The law cannot produce the deep transformation that we need. The law is effectively a management strategy based on human effort. It is an attempt to bring about change through our own efforts. That's all the law can do. It can produce human exertion to change. Some people call it white-knuckling because we grip as hard as we can, striving to make changes. But what happens when we do that? Typically, we lose motivation, we give up, uh, we, we, uh, we burn out. It produces only superficial change. On this point, there's always the danger And Scripture is constantly warning of this danger of focusing only on rules. We talk about all the things we shouldn't do, but even if someone is successful in avoiding all the bad stuff, has that produced real change? No. This is why many religious people gain a reputation for being terrible people despite all of their efforts. They may avoid many things that they have determined are problematic, but there is no real change in their hearts. Management strategies don't produce positive change. They don't produce real change. For example, 
just as one example, and we could go on and on about all sorts of examples, and each of us probably has certain things that we could plug into the blank here, but let me, let me just give one. Some Christians have identified alcohol as the greatest of evils, and this is an effect of the prohibition error, and, and I'm really not sure of why certain church traditions latched onto that. I, I recognize that, that there are some dangers there, but I'm not sure of the reasons surrounding that. But some Christians have identified alcohol as the greatest of evils, and they are tremendously proud of themselves for avoiding it. And so you'll actually meet these people, right? And they'll say, I I would never take a drink, or I haven't ever had a drink. But the avoidance of alcohol is no indication that one has given themselves over to God. Not at all. It is no indication that real change has happened. All they've managed to do is avoid something that they've identified as, you know, perhaps the chief of sins. And again, you can fill in the blank with all sorts of other things, even actual sins, like things the Bible actually calls a sin, unlike the use of alcohol, things the Bible actually calls a sin, we sometimes can focus on those so much that we think if we're not doing those, then we have somehow managed to to produce change, and that's simply not true. Jesus teaches this in, in the Sermon on the Mount when he looks at the Ten Commandments and he says, yes, you've kept the letter of the law, but you haven't kept the law. This aren't righteousness. You haven't produced any real change in your life. And so we can spend all day looking through the list of laws and checking boxes and saying, yeah, I've done that, I'm good, and yet have no deep, real change that makes us more like God. And that is why Paul says the Spirit and the law are opposed. The law can't change you. Even if someone is quite good at following the letter of the law, this will not produce change. This is why verses 19 through 21 come next. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, first, notice that this is not a comprehensive list. It does not include every single thing that we could put in the list. He concludes with the phrase, and things like these, meaning there's others, there's more. Second, don't forget the context. If you pull this verse out of context and forget what else Paul has said and what he's saying in the verses surrounding it, you will make the mistake that so many have made. You will think it is about managing sin by avoiding the things in this list. That is not Paul's point. I know it seems like it, and if you pull the verse out, pull these three verses out and look at them in isolation, then yes, you can distort Scripture to say that, but that is not what Paul wrote. Paul's point is that real change is evident by what it produces. And so when he looks at the law, he says you can tell real change hasn't happened because it doesn't produce deep change, and instead we still see the works of the flesh running rampant. And then third, notice that this list is remarkably broad. So you may not struggle with sorcery, 
but you do produce division. Well, you get included in that list. And that's a symptom, Paul says, sorcery, drunkenness, which is the sin, by the way, not, not the moderate use of alcohol that we were talking about earlier. Divisions, envy, all of these things are on the same plane in Paul's mind. And they're all symptoms of the flesh being in power. Now, why would Paul say that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? How, how can he say that? Isn't salvation through faith alone by grace alone? Yes, it, it is, absolutely. Salvation is not based on what we do or what we avoid. It is based entirely on our trust and dependence in Christ and what he has done. Uh, it's a point that Paul actually has made abundantly clear in this very book again and again and again and again. This is the danger of reading just a few verses. The Bible wasn't even written with chapter titles or verse numbers. That's hundreds of years after the Bible was in existence. And so when Paul writes the letter to Galatians, he has one letter, and you have to read the whole letter to make sure you understand what he says. You can't pull out a verse and say, here's the verse, and I'm going to twist it. No, one example of this is absolutely clear in chapter 3, verse 11. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. No one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. That's, that's what Scripture says. That's what Paul said just two chapters before. So if that's the case, what does Paul mean here in chapter 5 when he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? He means that saving faith in Christ results in the indwelling spirit who begins a work of transformation. And he means that the ongoing presence or lack of change evidenced by these things means that one has, has never embraced Christ. There's not genuine faith that is producing the indwelling of the Spirit. I think you can see this pretty clearly if you pay attention to his language. Notice he says they will not inherit. That word inherits an important key. Those who inherit the kingdom of God are those who have been adopted as God's children. They are the heirs. They have been adopted and given something. He doesn't say they will earn the kingdom of God. He talks about inheriting, which is inherently passive, meaning someone else has to will you something for you to inherit it. Now, how do we know that we have been adopted? Romans 8, 14, and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So the sign of adoption is the work of the Spirit inside a person's heart. So you have not, he goes on, verse 15, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, the Spirit's work in our hearts is the fundamental evidence of our adoption. He calls it the Spirit of adoption elsewhere. Please, please note here that the evidence of our salvation is not, did you say a prayer, or were you baptized, or did you join a church? 
The evidence is, has the Spirit warmed your heart to the gospel? Do you worship Jesus? Do you desire to obey Him? Do you sense the Spirit of God working in your heart and on your affections? Evidence of adoption is love and affection for God. It's intimacy with God. It's why we cry, Abba, Father. That is the Spirit's work in our heart. And that is the evidence of adoption. And that is the evidence that the Spirit is at work, beginning to uproot all of those things that Paul talked about in verses 19 through 21. All of those things that prove that we have not inherited the kingdom of God. Okay, so Paul isn't teaching some sort of works-based salvation, but he is saying that the Spirit's work in a person is evidence of their adoption. And that a continued, a continued practice or lifestyle characterized by those things is an indication that the Spirit is not, work in their, not at work in their heart. As Jesus says elsewhere, you will know a tree by the fruit it produces. Good trees produce good fruit, that is, trees that have been made alive, and bad trees produce bad fruit or no fruit at all. So the surest sign of the Spirit's activity is real change, even if it is slow change. Look what Paul says in Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, so he's contrasting it, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the signs that the Spirit is at work. It is not based on law or rule following, but genuine change through reliance on the Spirit. Now, how does the Spirit begin this work? He begins this work when one is united to Christ by faith. Adoption happens through faith. Salvation is not merely transactional in the sense that we go to heaven when we die. Salvation is being caught up into life with God. That's what the Bible calls eternal life. It doesn't just mean everlasting life. It means having a share in God's eternal life. It is participation and union and identification with Christ, which is why in Christ is so important as we read the New Testament. That's why Paul says this in verse 21, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. Change happens through association with Christ, through association with his death and his resurrection, not through trying harder, not through management principles. Now, now that we've looked at the whole passage, I want to go back to that first command, walk by the Spirit. And I want to ask, what does that mean, and how do we do that? Now, the command itself implies cooperation. Why else would Paul say walk by the Spirit? The very fact that he gives the command means there is a way for us to do the opposite. It is possible not to walk by the Spirit. Now, I've talked about the idea of walking briefly. Let me go back to that. Walking means to be guided. It means to follow. It means to join alongside. It is a metaphor the Bible uses for, for learning from and listening to. Often the, the idea of wisdom in the Bible is, is given in the language of walking along 
two paths, and there is a path of wisdom, and there is a path of destruction. And so walking by the Spirit has that sense of learning to follow God's wisdom, learning to rely on God's teaching, learning to depend on the Spirit's work in our hearts. And here's what Paul means by walk by the Spirit then. He means surrendering our lives to the Spirit, abandoning our self-will, our self-control, giving up control, depending on the Spirit, consulting the Spirit, asking for the Spirit's help. Walk by the Spirit is a picture of complete reliance on the Spirit and continually turning over our will to God. Dallas Willard once wrote, So life as normally understood, where the object is securing myself, promoting myself, indulging myself, is to be set aside. That that is walking by the Spirit, setting aside myself. That is the first principle. John Calvin said self-denial is the first principle of the Christian life. And he put it this way, For as the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves, So the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom, than to follow the Lord wherever he leads. Let this then be the first step, to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. It's the same thing Jesus teaches when he says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Not my will, but yours. That is what it means to walk by the Spirit. Let me make two practical suggestions. First, walking by the Spirit must be practiced. It is a habit to be cultivated, not something to do whenever the need seems to arise. Have you ever watched a professional golfer hit a ball so perfectly and effortlessly? Now, despite what you might think, that shot didn't happen in the moment. It's not just, although some contribution surely, but it's not just the result of natural talent. It's not as though that is the first time the golfer picked up the club and took a swing and hit it perfectly. What you are seeing in that moment is the result of hundreds of thousands of hours of practice manifested in a two-second golf swing. Likewise, holiness... And change is the result of countless hours of unseen preparation. One person referred to this as daily care. Others talk about spiritual disciplines or daily disciplines. The point is the same. Dependence on the Spirit begins with unseen moments of interacting with Scripture, meditation, silence, fasting, prayer, and on and on. The fruits of the Spirit are the result of accumulating daily dependence and cooperation with the Spirit. If we spend little time in concerted practice, then we should not be surprised that we see little change. Put another way, if we don't spend time in private prayer, having our will bent to God's, it should not surprise us when we lack the wisdom to control our temper. Walking by the Spirit is a practice that is to be cultivated daily and accumulates as we continue to rely on the Spirit day by day. 
And second, walking by the Spirit requires community. And we would misinterpret this passage if we thought it only concerned individuals. Notice what Paul says back at the end of verse 13. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. And verse 14, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Then verse 15, but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. Only after saying those things, and after saying those things, does he say in verse 16, walk by the Spirit. You have to see the connection then. This whole concept of walking by the Spirit is rooted in community. And we cannot learn to walk by the Spirit without community. And there are at least two reasons for this. First, the fruits of the Spirit are only visible in community as we love and serve each other. You can't do that as a single person. You have to have others. Second, God designed community to be a primary means of shaping us. Confessing our sins to each other, really knowing each other, and embracing each other is one of the most powerful means of shaping who we are. Sadly, most churches are really bad at this. Churches claim to be places of community, and you'll hear them talk about fellowship, but they are usually not safe places to be known. They usually don't have real community. All they simply mean is we show up at the same time in the same space to do individual worship and then go home not to ever have any other meaningful interaction. And what we have in church is fellowship that is really just superficial acquaintanceship. When is the last time you confessed your sins to someone else in the church? And I don't mean the superficial stuff like, well, I got angry and I yelled at the dog. I mean the really dark stuff that's going on inside you. The the issue that you have with the things you're watching on the internet, right? The things that you're watching on TV, the things that you want to do, the the conversation you're having with the person from high school that's not your spouse. Or maybe it's not even a confession of sin, although it could be that. Maybe it's just other dark stuff that you're really afraid of dying or or that you don't trust God or you don't think God is good. When is the last time you brought that stuff to other people in our so-called community? When is the last time a group met to discuss the evils of their heart, and rather than criticism and judgment, there was embrace and prayer? It's amazing, but that is one of the most powerful things that you see in the church should be the place where it's happening, and yet the church is so terrible at it. You know, it's, it's a shame, but AA groups and other recovery groups are far better at it than the churches. Why people don't get the help they need in churches, but yet they find the ability to really change within a recovery group. Isn't it amazing? It's alarming. So we need community, but it has to be real biblical community. It can't be the superficial, individualized thing that we call fellowship. It's got to be real partnership, rooted in the gospel of Jesus. 
Individual Christianity is not biblical Christianity, and I would suggest to you that if you've never seen real transformation, it's likely because you have never put yourself in real community. I don't care if you've gone to the same church for decades. doesn't mean you've had real community. Change is possible, but it requires daily reliance on the Spirit and commitment to a body of believers. John Walvard was a well-known theologian and president at Dallas Theological Seminary. On his deathbed, he was asked for advice. What's the one piece of advice you would give Dr. Walvard? And he thought for a moment, and then he answered, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. It really does work. Here is a eminent theologian, well-known theologian, who after the work of a lifetime of studying the things of God, comes back to Galatians 5.16 and says, it does work. Change is possible, but it's only possible through the Spirit. And we must embrace Christ and identify with him completely if we ever want to see real change. As C.S. Lewis put it, out of ourselves into Christ we must go. Out of ourselves into Christ. That is what we must do. And when we do that, we will find that God's Holy Spirit will empower us to change.